HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. I believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and director of New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen isakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is a so mystery for many people, and I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. My guest today is Joshua Schlaschett, who is the assistant professor of Japanese history at the University of Arizona. Josh is a historian of early modern and modern Japan, specializing in the cultural history of food and nourishment in the 18th and 19th centuries, which was the era of powerful shoguns and the subsequent westernization. But the scope of his work is way beyond, it sounds. His research includes global and comparative food studies and histories of science and health, which we can practically apply to a modern and often problematic lifestyle. By the way, just join us on episode 98 as an instructor of the Washoku Iku program, which teaches elementary and middle school students in the U.S. about Japanese food and food ways through hands-on cooking and learning activities. So today, uh, we'll discuss the flourishing Japanese food culture in 18th and 19th centuries, which also gave birth to our favorite Japanese foods, including sushi, the unique healthy diet philosophies back then, how we can apply them to our life, and much, much more. 
But before you start, Japan is available on the Heritage Video Network website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a po- podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's start a conversation with Josh Rashek. Hello, Josh. Welcome back. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really it's such a pleasure to be here. I'm glad we can have、uh, another conversation. And I, I owe you、uh, an additional thank you also for、uh, coming in、uh, earlier in the semester to speak with my class, which was such a lovely、uh, treat. So hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that、oh, a little、wow. bit later as well. <laughs> yeah, welcome. So, yeah, we're going to discuss、uh, your classes too. But I got so lucky to be able to be a part of your, one of your classes. And I was so inspired by your students. So, thank you so much. Thank you again for that. So,、uh, so, first of all,、uh, where from and what did you eat when you grew up? Yeah, so I mean, I,、um, actually, Arizona is, is new to me. I was born and raised in New York, spent most of my life、uh, in, in New York City and,、uh, and nearby.、Um, so, I was really fortunate enough to grow up、uh, you know, eating in a city and in a family、uh, with a diverse and a, and a promiscuous、uh, palate, right?、Uh, <laughs> I ate.、Um, Uh, a good deal of, of Japanese food as a kid,、uh, which I was very lucky to, or I should say at least what sort of passed for, for Japanese food in the, in the 80s and 90s、uh, in, in the US.、Um, and I still remember some、uh, kind of fun and maybe by today's standards surprising、uh, examples of, of that.、Um, but,、uh, you know, of course, I'm still a you know, kid from New York Jewish family, so I still love、uh, a good lox and whitefish spread at the holidays and every now and then. But、um, that was kind of my,、uh, my culinary upbringing. Right? <laughs> that sounds very New York.、Um, so,、uh, so, I heard that you were in Japan on an exchange program while you were a PhD student. And、mm-hmm. so, when did you go there and know how was the experience?、Uh, yeah, so, so I, I've been very, very lucky、uh, to be you know, in and out of Japan、uh, pretty often, every couple of years at least, for, for work and, and for school.、Um, and the trip that you're referring to、uh, was back in,、uh, I guess, 2015. Um, when I was doing my, my graduate work at Columbia, I had the chance to spend a year、uh, based at Waseda University in, in Tokyo for my research.、Um, and that was just a really a, a wonderful opportunity to, to be back and、uh, to spend maybe my first extended time in, in Tokyo itself、uh, to dig、uh, deeper into the materials and libraries and get to interact with some wonderful people in the process.、Uh, you know, by the time I left Tokyo, I was really starting to, to feel like a second home, which, which was、uh, truly. Wonderful、uh, for me. I, f- I can't wait to get back. Unfortunately, those plans were、um, scuttled by, by the coronavirus, but hopefully sometime soon.、Mm. Uh, but before that, you know, I, I had spent a year in, in, in Kagoshima,、uh, in southern Kyushu,、um, and maybe spent a bit too much time、uh, in between and other shorter trips, kind of eating my way across Japan、uh, during some, some other visits. So,、uh, oh, wow. I didn't know that. To- right. So, you were、uh, working or you a student, or what was the purpose of the stay in Kagoshima? Uh, I was there in a Fulbright fellowship. So I was there、uh, also doing some sort of early research and cultural exchange, but、uh, getting a chance to、uh, be in a place that was very new and very unfamiliar、uh, to me, only familiar through, through books,、uh, with my interest in the sort of late Edo period.、Uh, obviously,、uh, Kagoshima Satsuma at the time was an important place uh, to be uh, towards the end of that period. So、um, it was a great pleasure to get to spend、mm. some time there and to learn directly from the sources and from the history right in the area. Right. And、uh, I'm sure you had a lot of、uh, potato shochu. That's the best of the best <laughs> from the origins.、Yes. I definitely developed、uh, a taste for it, I'll say. Right. <laughs> hard, hard to get here in Tucson. Still、yeah. working on that part. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, well, that's, we can just talk about that on another episode. But uh, <laughs> so, so you are a historian of early modern and modern Japan and specializing in cultural history of food and nourishment in the 18th、mm-hmm. and 19th century. So, how did you get into Japanese culture in the first place? I mean, it's, it's such a great question, and I think I could have multiple answers for it. I mean, if you. Uh, if, if you ask my mom, you know, she'll tell you it was when she took me to rake the rock garden at the sushi restaurant, you know, when I was four, right? So there's <laughs> that very, very kind of deep history, maybe.、Uh, but, but I think for me, the exposures to Japanese culture that were most kind of meaningful to me and that really got me started on this path、uh, really happened in, in college when I met a Uh, a really incredible、uh, professor who works on, on the Edo period,、uh, like I now do,、uh, who inspired me to really think cross culturally,、uh, to, to learn as much as I can about Japan and、uh, kind of be a, a voracious consumer of, of Japanese culture and history.、Uh, and it really took off、uh, from there. So for me, really thinking and caring and immersing myself in, in, in Japan、uh, and teaching about it and sort of being. Uh, a historically minded person, hopefully,、uh, more generally, really kind of go hand in hand through that、uh, experience. So、uh, from there, I just got more and more interested in Japanese culture and continued to、uh, continue to learn, and I still continue to learn.、Mm, right. Well, it's interesting that you know, each guest、uh, we have has different reasons to get into Japanese culture. And、uh, it's funny、mm. that the four years old, that Japanese garden at the sushi restaurant, <laughs> the <laughs> sure. restaurant. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I, I mean, I've, I've only been told about it, right? It's, it's a, a faint memory from a long time ago for me, but、uh, my, my、uh, family remembers it very well.、Mm, wow. Okay. I think old Japanese restaurants show a nice、uh, stone garden for <laughs> attracting <Yes> . elders' <laughs> attention. Right. right. Get everyone、um, started early, right? Yeah. <laughs> And so,、uh, so, how did you get into Japanese food history, specifically in the Edo period that was from 1603 to 1867, specifically?、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe that one's a bit trickier for me. And, and、um, I guess you'd think I'd have a better answer for this after, after all this time. And this is not the first time I've been asked this question, but、uh, I guess I've had a, a much longer. Uh, interest in, in the history of cooking and the history of food culture and, and cooking itself,、uh, you know, really from, from a young age, from、uh, you know, watching the, you know, back then the recently launched Food Network and all of that and being excited about、uh, the, the sort of、uh, culture and ceremony around food that had been、uh, something that, that was、um, on my mind from early on.、Uh, but maybe my time at the, at the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America,、uh, you know, opened my eyes to, to what was possible. With food, right? Partially、mm. um, with,、uh, you know, in terms of training that many, many of my peers went on to be chefs. I didn't.、Um, but、uh, just seeing kind of what's out there and what's available and how many different directions that food culture can, can take、mm. you in.、Um, so I must admit that, that, you know, back then the CIA was still,、um, I would say, catching up to, to, the, to the trend of, of Japanese food in, in the US. So a lot of that individual learning I had to. Um, kind of seek out.、Um, but,、um, you know, I think that that kind of fascination combined with my, my experience there、uh, really helped it kind of grow and grow and kind of nurtured it in that way. So,、um, so I guess I guess I was always fascinated by Japanese food culture and, and frankly, maybe a little bit, you know, frustrated by, by kind of how poor of a job I had、uh, up to that point done in, in sort of、uh, really grasping it. So by the time I got to 
studied the Edo period, you know, in, in, in earnest in, in college, uh, I, I felt very fortunate to have kind of found that that outlet for many of these questions about Japanese food culture that had been mm. on my mind uh, in, in uh, incipient form for, uh, for a very long time. Right. Well, I, I, actually, to be honest, I didn't know that you went to CIA too. That's <laughs> crazy. Oh, um, so, sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to. So, well, so, so the, how did it happen? Like it's going to the CIA, it's practically mm. it's going to Harvard of the culinary world. So w- when was it? That was uh, before, after you graduated from uh, university or how, how did it Actually, it was before. Oh. Um, that was before I went to, to college. So that was um, in, uh, I guess I finished in 2003. So it was... Yeah, right around the, you know, very early 2000s. Mm, wow. So you must be really into, must have been really into food, uh, including now. <laughs> Has been I was. I, I went right in from, from high school at the time. And, um, you know, this was a time when if you were interested in food, you know, the sort of celebrity chef thing, it just sort of started. So there was a, a pretty strong appeal uh, there. But if you're interested in food, you... Um, you know, you, you became a cook or a chef, right? And um, uh, it was only just starting to be a possibility to get into, say, food writing um, or uh, even less so to get into uh, kind of scholarship on, on food. So it's been a real pleasure for me to see how the, the field of possibilities expanded and transformed in front of me uh, as I've been kind of going through it. So it's been a real, uh, I count myself as very fortunate that those opportunities have, have, um, have opened up to such a degree uh, and that that interest uh, in the U.S. more broadly has um, diversified uh, mm. in, in terms of uh, understanding and thinking about food culture and history. Right. That's very impressive. So so you wanted to be a chef. Uh, that was your initial attention when you signed up for the, the course at CIA? For a brief moment, I think I realized very quickly <laughs> that I'm pretty, pretty slow in the kitchen and would not make even a very good line cook, let alone a good chef. Um, so that was sort of out the window uh, from early on. But I did always want to uh, take more of a, um, I wouldn't say academic, but more of a um, sort of interest in the history and the culture uh, and, and see what direction that would take me. So at the time, that was the that was where you went to, to mm. pursue that. And um, it, uh, you know, gave me a, a, a great start um, that I uh, feel very lucky to have had. Right. Oh, now this conversation is even more exciting to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, let's see. So the, let's talk about the food culture in Edo period. So Edo mm. period was the first era in the Japanese history when the general public widely enjoyed a peaceful life and the prosperity of mm. commerce and culture, including food. Um, mm-hmm. That was almost the first time in the history because Edo people really enjoyed that the middle class um, and middle lower class in that life. So the capital of Japan during the, the Edo period was also called Edo, which is now Tokyo. So I heard that there are over a million people living in Edo. So what was the food culture like during the Edo period? And uh, what did people eat in general? Sure. I mean, so what you said is already, uh, you know, incredibly important in terms of thinking about how food culture in the Edo period got to be the way that it was, right? This era uh, of the great peace, as it's known, right, of 250 years of basically uninterrupted uh, peace um, is uh, not only extremely uh, new in Japanese history, it's also extremely uncommon in world history. Um, So that is, uh, you know, created a new set of of opportunities. Uh, And of course, the kind of draw of these major urban centers, uh, like Edo that you mentioned, what's now Tokyo, um, that, uh, you know, by the middle of the Edo period, 
uh, had over a million people and was uh, the largest city on, on Earth, right? Bigger than uh, London, bigger than Paris, right? This was the uh, kind of cultural uh, center at, at the time. So this creates uh, all kinds of opportunities for cultural transformation. Uh, but I will say that this question of just what people ate in the Edo period, which sounds very uh, straightforward, is actually quite uh, a complicated one. Um, and it really depends on who we're, we're talking about. Um, if we're talking about ordinary people, um, then I think the answer is very different than if we're talking about, say, elite banqueters. Uh, I did want to share this quote um, by uh, Michel de Certeau that I think sums this up so well. Um, and of course, he's talking about France, but I think it equally applies to kind of commoner cuisine of the Edo period. He says that ordinary cuisine, he thinks of it as, quote, a, a zone of silence and shadow hidden within the indefinitely repeated detail of common existence. Um, and I love this quote. I mean, for me, this is sort of a fancy way of saying that what most common people ate, especially at home, didn't even rise to the level of, of writing down, right? It was so ordinary, so natural for people to consume, uh, and frankly, often uh, repetitive. People would eat the sort of the same foods uh, over and over again, um, that it makes it difficult to even get a full grasp on what normal people were eating uh, at the time, right? But we do have some guesses, right? What were what were these these things that were wrapped in silence and shadow, right? Uh, for for most people, we're talking about uh, essentially uh, coarse grains, um, very little uh, to no white rice in most diets, maybe a little bit of brown rice in, in rural villages. Um, we're talking about more uh, barley, uh, millet, and other coarse grains mixed with a few vegetables, maybe a daikon, daikon greens, um, which was known, by the way, as one of the most versatile and, and most sort of good-for-you uh, foods you, you could eat in the Edo period. Uh, but we're talking about kind of one-pot cooking for the most part when we're talking about uh, commoners, especially in, in rural uh, areas, right? Um <laughs> But at the same time, we still, we're now starting to get a growing sense of sort of growing evidence that there may have been a good deal more variety of ingredients in the Edo diet than, than all this that I just said might uh, suggest. And this is coming not only from people reading uh, documents uh, on village life from the Edo period, but even from people who are doing um, uh, like, like DNA analysis of the gunk in teeth from skeletons from the Edo period and such um, that's finding actually a much wider diversity uh, of ingredients potentially, of different kinds of vegetables uh, in the diet, um, of uh, different kinds of uh, fish, usually river fish, uh, unless you're in one of these major coastal cities. Um, but we're getting this kind of push and pull between uh, what's available, what most people are eating, uh, and how wide that diet might have been. Right. Mm. Um, but of course, all of this is in contrast to the kind of food of elite banquets, right? Diners in these urban centers, people of means, which could be extraordinarily extravagant, which, um, you know, we actually know quite a lot about through very carefully recorded uh, menus, right, of, of elite banquets, uh, a, a very clear sense of exactly what dishes were involved in every tray that was put in front of every important person uh, at major banquets in the Edo periods, those who know quite a bit about. And that starts to come uh, a little bit closer to what we might think of as being uh, resembling sort of kaiseki cuisine uh, today, perhaps. Right. Um, so, and yeah, at the same I, time, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, keep going. I was going to say that at the same time, we have these kind of early forms of, of industry um, that are taking 
what are now sort of common flavors and bringing them into the mainstream diet, right? Soy sauce, uh, sushi, tempura, right? Um, none of these were widely available or even existed at all uh, before the Edo period. So we do see a pretty major diversification of styles and the emergence of um, some really iconic foods and ingredients that uh, kind of represent Japanese food more recently, right? So I think overall, uh, we could say that for most average people, especially outside the cities, um, you know, the diet might not have looked a whole lot like we might expect. Um, there's not a lot of polished white rice. One pot meals were more common than, say, the the sort of Ichichu Sansai model, the the uh, one uh, soup and three side dishes model um, that's so common in in uh, sort of standard Japanese meal uh, now. Um, so we see some differences, but also the development of very important and prominent aspects of what becomes uh, sort of traditional Japanese food culture. Mm, right, there's so many layers, and uh, and like you said, uh, you know, Edo was a de major city, but during the Edo period, of course, uh, Japan is the whole country. So outside uh, Edo city, um, it could be just the farmers. They're just only eating, you know, like you said, brown rice and just a little bit of pickles and <laughs> very poor diet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then it, on the other hand, the Edo people started to develop something kind of similar to like casual eateries and food carts, including, you know, Edo Mae Sushi, which is what we call sushi, right? Because um, mm-hmm. we made, they made sushi uh, with the fish just caught off Edo, which is Tokyo mm-hmm. Bay now. So, and I heard uh, New Yorkers are very similar to Edo people. They're just, really, they're so impatient. You know, it's a New York minute, it's an Edo minute. So they really mm-hmm. have to develop some quick food that was sushi. That was back then, it's made mm-hmm. um, at the cart and it was sold on the street. So, yeah, that's like an interesting layers of one diet. I, I asked you a major question, and then you gave me multiple answers. And um, sorry, maybe that was a little too much. But but, no, um, no, but no, like, no, like yeah. you said, I'm, I'm I'm rambling a little bit. But like you said, um, the importance of 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 the pace of life in the city of Edo, right? We have to think of this, just like you said, this sort of bustling New York-like atmosphere uh, where the the yatai, the food stall, uh, becomes one of the major avenues for um, the development of food culture, right? And that's um, whether you're getting a a cheap uh, bite of soba, which is the most popular, uh, or um, the emergence of sushi, right? This uh, fish that's caught sort of in the Edo Bay right there in front of you and then, uh, you know, prepared and sold as you're walking down the street and you just grab and go. Um, There is that really strong connection between this kind of vibrancy of urban culture and the ways that um, eating is is happening uh, in mm. Japan during the Edo period in these cities. Right. I wish I could just go and then have a piece of sushi uh, just right for the cart and then keep walking yes. in the street. <laughs> like so cool. Yeah, um. absolutely. They were big though. They were they were at least double the size of a regular nigiri sushi now. So uh, you'd eat them in multiple bites, and that's a, a big change. That kind of one small one bite portion in front of you that we get now um, is uh, is something that developed later. Wow. Okay. But I don't complain. The bigger, the better it comes to. Exactly. Yes. Uh, So, and I also heard that over the course of, you know, a couple hundred years, they developed some uh, interest in, uh, you know, cooking. So I heard uh, at the end of um, like 18th century, there's a cookbook boom and uh, there existed over 200 cookbooks available Mm -hmm. to the public. And wow, this is like a food network, uh, Edo version. 
happen back then. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We have this kind of information revolution uh, happening with this boom in print culture in the Edo period, where we have um, just an overload of books on on everything you could imagine, right? But this uh, kind of appetite for popular reading was especially strongly felt in books on uh, food and on diet. So we have all kinds of cookbooks, um, some with uh, for kind of um, excitement and popular culture and fantasy motives, others potentially to cook with um, are, are coming out, right? That are giving people uh, a real look at um, these kind of behind the scenes uh, usually hidden in fancy restaurants, uh, images of how cooking worked and uh, why they should be interested in it. We also have a huge boom uh, in the books that I mostly spend my time reading uh, about diet and health uh, and thinking about why uh, you should eat certain foods over others and what that kind of means for your body more generally. So print is so important for circulating these ideas about um, what to eat, why you should be excited about it, and what it does to you. Mm, right. And uh, this is a uh, kind of tangential, but back then, people really quite um, uh, liter- literate in Edo. I think uh, mm-hmm. there's a, you know, there's a good uh, mindset to educate people. And that was very important. It was prioritized. So people are able to read uh, cookbooks, of course, and many other things. So that was a very interesting fact. There's just uh, not just a lot of people, but pretty well educated people. In Edo. Absolutely, yeah. So we have a you know a, a high literacy rate, you know, in, in the cities especially, but really throughout Edo Japan, um, that's allowing this information to circulate, uh, you know, far beyond where it might in uh, other uh, areas of the world around the same time. So we can mm. see how um, that high literacy rate, that kind of uh, education system or multiple education systems are are. Um, contributing to the opportunity to learn new things. And people really embraced this um, sort of learning as entertainment uh, model, uh, certainly around food, but around a lot of other things too. Mm, right. Well, speaking of education, in your research, you discussed the influential work by Kaibara Ikiken, who ad- mm. addressed uh, dietary health for the public in his book, Yojo-kun, that was written in 1713. And I'd imagine there is a there are problems to be fixed, and that's why the book was written. <laughs> so do you know mm-hmm. what the, the problems were back then? Sure. So first of all, I should say um, that, that Ekiken loved this kind of sparse rural diet that we were talking about before. He romanticized it. He loved it, as, as did um, a number of other people at the time, because the problem they were really concerned about was luxury, excess, and overconsumption in the cities. Right? Sounds so he's familiar. Seeing, sure, yes, exactly. <laughs> this is very relatable. This is an extremely relatable story. Um, so he's seeing uh, kind of samurai shirking their responsibilities in favor of kind of luxurious eating and luxurious living. Uh, and he sees merchants uh, who were meant at the time to be at the bottom of the kind of social hierarchy uh, acting immorally by consuming more than they should, by flaunting their wealth. Uh, through conspicuous consumption, uh, by eating, uh, you know, things that were maybe not meant for them. Um, And uh, all of this uh, becomes a major concern, uh, both in terms of the sort of physical health of of the individuals themselves, but also in terms of the kind of social health um, and thinking about the kind of fabric that holds society together and how people um, forgetting their place in favor of 
luxurious overconsumption could make that start to, to come apart, right? So for at least those who could afford it, uh, we have new opportunities to eat maybe beyond one's social station. This comes from uh, more money uh, in the economy, more food in the economy. Uh, this is a, around the period um, just before uh, Eki Ken writes his book, it published in 1713, um, when we start to see a switch uh, to from two meals a day to three meals a day um, as being sort of common for people uh, in, in the Edo period, particularly in the cities. Um, so that is a pretty dramatic change. And he's seeing this uh, consumption and... Um, then maybe looking back at this sparser rural diet um, that's much more maybe in line with his ideas of health and saying, you know, maybe we should all be eating those kind of coarse grain, one pot barley and millet uh, meals. Mm, interesting. So, um, yeah, it's a <laughs> intermittent fasting already um, advocated yes. by <laughs> Kaiba Raikian. Um, yeah, I heard that during the Edo period, many people began to suffer from beriberi because they mm -hmm. couldn't afford to eat uh, polished rice, uh, polished rice uh, before because only eating, you know, like coarse rice or mm -hmm. uh, brown rice, and as a result, uh, their vitamin B one intake dropped dramatically. So a lot of people suffered from baby baby. So maybe that's really the visible example of how people are suffering, but then um, physically. So mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. This was not just. I'm sorry. Just go ahead. And I was just I wanted to say that. Um, they're they're more um, for, they were able to eat more food, like you said, two times to three times a day of meal. But um, still, majority of people uh, had a lot of rice that was a main source of uh, nutrition and calories. So that's why they switched to polished rice. They really dramatically change, shift the uh, nutrition in one meal. That's why they were really easy to develop very, very. It does make sense to me. Absolutely. It's, so it's not just moralism, right, on, um, on the part of these uh, people who are writing and thinking about uh, food culture. They're really observing people getting sick from their diets in, in real life. And they don't really, um, the, the, the reason, their explanation for, for why that's happening is a little different than the ones that arise in the, in the 20th century. But certainly they're seeing, um, you know, rice, really coming into the cities as tax, basically, um, and being eaten by those who have this opportunity for luxury consumption, right? Polished rice. And when you polish it, you, of course, lose that that vitamin B1, that thiamine that you need, um, that you would get from the brown rice or barley or other uh, sources. Um, so, of course, out in the countryside where they're eating barley and a little bit of brown rice, they're not having a problem with that. But in the cities, uh, we start to see the rise of beriberi, known at the time as the Edo affliction, uh, because of that connection between luxury um, and um, the ability to eat new foods and what you lose in uh, transforming the foods in that way and polishing the rice in particular. Mm, right. So, so Kai Barekken, he was a doctor and... and uh... He was a great author too. So that his famous book Yojo uh, Yojo Kun. So mm -hmm. what's what's the essence? What's the core message of Yojo Kun, written by Kaibara Ikiken? Yeah. So I mean, there, there's a lot in that book, and this is kind of the the beginning of of what I write about. This is sort of the first chapter of my my book in in progress. Um, the, the core message is actually very very simple. It's uh, moderation and it's circulation. Right. So uh, 
you know, eating too much food or eating the wrong foods in the wrong ways, uh, you know, could really be the difference between life and death for him, right? So this is both in terms of uh, picking the right and wrong foods, which he has um, these these very long sort of tabulated lists of what foods are good for uh, certain conditions, right? Whether you're old or young or infirmed or, um, you know, how that food will act on your body differently depending on what condition your body is already in. Uh, he has uh, lists of what becomes a very popular um, uh, term after him, known as koyawase, or, or um, uh, what foods to uh, eat or not eat in, in combination with each other that could uh, create bad uh, effects in, in the body. Um, but all of this uh, really boiled down to the idea of everything in moderation. So this would be like the the most boring diet plan by today's standards, right? The exact thing that nobody wants to do is just eat everything in, in moderation. <laughs> Don't eat too much. Um, this is where the famous saying, by the way, of uh, harahachibu or harahachibume, right? E eating until your uh, stomach is eight-tenths full. Um, that's still popular today. This is where it comes from. He's the one who popularizes that idea. Um, mm. So moderation is extremely important uh, for him. Um, and of course, doing so, right, eating in this right way uh, will, for him, allow your vital energy to circulate through your body unimpeded, right? So this mm. circulation is very, very important as well. And that also involves your physical activity, getting up and walking around after you eat, um, et cetera, right? So he's uh, saying basically that taking sustenance, uh, you know, from food from the natural world in the right amounts and allowing it to kind of act on your body in the most beneficial way is the, the, the core of the message. And then from there, it goes on into very specific and detailed advice about eat this, don't eat that. Mm, right. And I also heard he was a, a doctor, but also a Confucian. And, uh, yes. so, and I found a quote from uh, Yozogun. In essence, mm. it's not a direct. I just translate it. So, <laughs> and it says, <laughs> be calm, suppress your anger and desire. This desire includes like, you know, anything from eating to sexual desire to anything to raise mm -hmm. your emotion um, dramatically and uh, enjoy your life. Don't worry. And these are the keys to control your mind. Without controlling your mind, you cannot take care of your body. So in other words, Kaiba Reikiken taught how to prevent illness by being mindful. And in a modern life, we can learn so much from him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's yeah. exactly right. And pre preventative is probably the key word, not just in Yojokun, but in so many of other kinds of related texts from the Edo period, right? This idea that um, if you're already sick, it's too late, right? If you're seeking the advice of a doctor, if you're taking medicine, uh, then you've, you've already missed the opportunity to do well by your body. And it's really mm. in, um, you know, eating properly, regulating yourself, uh, which for him includes more than just food, right? It's about uh, sleep and movement and sexuality and uh, a, whole, a whole number of, of different sort of um, uh, lifestyle activities, uh, but very much food, I think, at the center of it. Um, that, that um, you know, using those properly, do, performing those properly as a way to uh, prevent illness from ever happening is, is another one of those very important uh, core messages. And a lot of what he says feels very relatable. Like you said, he'll say, you know, Eat, eats until you're not quite full yet, right? Don't don't eat until your stomach feels stuffed. Um, don't eat if you're feeling uh, upset or emotional, right? Um, move around to help yourself digest after you've eaten. I mean, a lot of these are very common sense, uh, you know, types of, of observations. Some of them even border on kind of 
what we would call public health now, right? Don't um, drink water that's you know dripping off of your roof or sitting in a stagnant pool, right? There are all kinds of ways that he's creating this um, sort of comprehensive system of how to eat and how to live. Um, and he's only really one of the first people who uh, lays that out and then many others uh, you know, follow and create their own versions. Mm, right. So it's simple and uh, it's universal and it's applicable to this day. <laughs> so that's Kaibara Ekiken's mm-hmm. Yojoken. All right. Yeah. So and if I can add... Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. Sorry, if I can just, if I can just add one more, more thing that, that I find so interesting about this text that my students really respond to also uh, is he has this um, some passages that feel... Um, maybe more more Confucian than others. I don't know what the right way to put it is exactly, but uh, among those passages is he has this uh, this idea of the five considerations um, that is uh, an important element of, of how he's um, discussing food, but in some ways a little bit of a... Um, um, a little bit of a move away from the central theme of, of, uh, of moderation, but more towards uh, creating a sense of um, awareness of the origins of your food and um, how lucky you are to have it, right? So he says, among other things, you know, be aware of the people who made the food for you um, and their lifestyles of, of, you know, those who grew and created it and be thankful to them for their, uh, for for creating that opportunity for you. Uh, He says quite explicitly, even if you have no particular merit of your own, you may still have food in front of you by the virtue of uh, the, the hard work of farmers, so thank them and think of them while you're eating it. Uh, think of your family, and of course in the time, think of your, your uh, lord, your domain lord, uh, who, who allowed you to have this food, right? But this idea of sort of really thinking about where your food comes from, how it gets to you, um, and how that relates to your own consumption, uh, for him, really just trying to create a different sense of how you live with food and how you appreciate food. Mm, interesting. I just heard that uh, studies show that with the attitude of gratitude, your happiness level goes up dramatically. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, that really makes sense that what he was saying was so true. Yeah, that was so, a, a particular sort of standout passage for me. Right. Okay. So I'll remember that too. Um, <laughs> all right. So we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll discuss uh, what we can practically learn from the history of Japanese diet. So please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. 
Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This episode is supported by Nourish and Flourish. Nourish and Flourish features behind-the-scenes stories about artisans, producers, farmers, growers, and other makers in America, along with delicious and wholesome recipes. The latest issue of Nourish and Flourish is a special artisanal gift guide showcasing some of America's finest products, including everything from the farm and garden to eco-friendly home goods, kitchen and cooking essentials, bath and body, original art, blown glass, seasonal recipes, and so much more. Shop online to support local and buy local. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more at nourishandflourish.site. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, and my guest today is Joshua Schlaschett, who is the assistant professor of Japanese history at the University of Arizona. He's a historian of early modern and modern Japan, specializing in a cultural history of food and nourishment in the 18th and 19th centuries. So right after the Edo period, uh, there was a dramatic change in the traditional Japanese diet in the new Meiji period. So what happened in the Meiji period and how did events affect the Japanese diet? So this is such an important question and really one of the, the major uh, turning points in, in the sort of foods that are eaten in Japan. So it's undeniably true, right, that the Meiji period brings about really dramatic changes uh, in the Japanese diet. I do also want to say that one of the things that I try to argue uh, in the book is that much of this transformation, especially in thinking about food and in circulating ideas of how to eat right and why to eat right, a lot of which happened through the, the uh popular print that we already talked about, um, is really starting to happen in the Edo period itself. And we can see uh, happening back in, in that period first. So even if the diet itself is only undergoing sort of um, maybe modest changes, if you look at the entire population, we can see really dramatic points of change during the Edo period uh, already, right, um, uh, in, in sort of targeted pockets, whether it's uh, urban centers or in the sort of circulation of information. So I find that to be really fascinating. Um, but of course, things do change all over again in a big way in the Meiji period. Um, and a few, there are a few different ways in which that happens, right? So first of all is the, the introduction of, of new uh, Western and global foods. Um, and the most iconic of these, of course, is, uh, is, is beef, uh, eaten at first in, in the form of hot pots or gyunabe, um, which uh, is the kind of... Um, uh, forerunner of what becomes uh, stuff like skiaki and uh, shabu shabu and things like that. Uh, but it's also in, in early versions of uh, koroke, tonkatsu, curry, um, foods that are extremely common uh, in, in Japan now. So we start to see these really coming in with the kind of introduction of um, a more direct interaction with uh, the globe, even though there was interaction with the globe happening in the Edo period too. Um, so we see as the sort of arrival of uh, foreign and particularly Western powers enters Japan in the sort of late 19th century, we see them bringing with them these uh, major important uh, foods that start to again get transformed and brought into Japanese food culture uh, from right. there. Mm. We also have the right, lifting but... of... Oh, sorry, go mm -hmm. ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So lifting I was gonna say, we also have the lifting of, uh, of, of sumptuary laws 
which is very important, and the lifting of what had been sort of partial taboos or some say bans against meat-eating uh, during the Edo period. So uh, a sumptuary law basically is a law that regulates uh, what you can and cannot do uh, in a sort of uh, cultural way with your own body. Um, so these uh, are restrictions that were very strong in the Edo period on what clothes you could wear, et cetera, right? How you sort of present physically, uh, but very strong on what you could eat also. Um, so we had laws dividing uh, what specific ingredients were reserved for only the most elite people in society. We had uh, very explicit and, and specific laws about um, how many different uh, you know, trays you could have in front of you at your banquet and how many dishes you could have on those trays. Um, so that is uh, one important sort of structuring factor in the Edo period that gets lifted in the Meiji period uh, and more foods essentially become available uh, to more people and access really changes quite uh, dramatically. Right. Yeah. We also have the rise of modern it's nutritional like... sciences. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, it's just basically before the Meiji era, people didn't eat bread or milk, there's no cheese or, mm-hmm. and the beer came in. And also I, I heard uh, the emperor had to, had to show that it's okay to eat beef because he was a symbolic mm-hmm. figure. And before that, people were skeptical and some people got so upset that the emperor ate the beef. So he tried, they tried to um, attack the emperor basically. In the imperial house, and uh, and like you said, it's not just food. You know, the samurais had to uh, stop carrying a samurai sword, and samurais couldn't mm-hmm. keep their <laughs> unique hairstyle because it looks like a little weird for the Western view. So, it is a lot of things happened, but yeah, that was a dramatic. Um, all right, so um, along with that, there is a term shokuiku which is mm-hmm. a very important idea to understand the Japanese approach to food nowadays even. And it was coined by the doctor and the ph- pharmacist Ishizuka Sagem. So he was in the 19th century. And what was the meaning of shokuiku and what was the point of his argument? Yeah, so this is such a fascinating story for me because we have this kind of blip in history of this term shokuiku that that comes up uh, in the in the late nineteenth century, in the eighteen nineties in particular, um, and then kind of goes away for for quite a long time, and then uh, obviously as as many of us are familiar with, comes back in a big big way just in the last you know ten or twenty years uh, to indicate of I think. Um, a related but in some ways different idea to what Ishizuka Sagan had. So uh, the actual quote that this comes from, which is a little bit cryptic, as, as you might um, see, is basically uh, So physical education, intellectual education, and moral education are all food education. Um, and he says this, um, you know, in, in his uh, book on sort of how to eat and why, one of his several books on how to eat why um and and there's been a bit of a debate on sort of what exactly he means by this right one i think strong interpretation is that he's saying that all of these other aspects of your education of your sort of upbringing as a person particularly as a young person are all dependent on or even potentially subservient to uh knowing and learning and thinking about food and eating right right um so ishizuka himself is is an interesting figure. He's, he's a bit of an extremist, a bit of a kind of food determinist, 
uh, in his time. He believed that everything you needed to learn and know about yourself could be gained through eating right. Um, and for him, he had a very specific definition of eating right. He was the uh, founder and uh, leading figure of a movement that's uh, becomes known as uh, serialism or kokushoku-shugi, um, mm -hmm. where um, he's advocating for essentially nothing but whole grains, uh, certain vegetables, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, and he is in many ways pushing back against uh, some of the things that we talked about just a minute ago with the introduction of Western diets against uh, beef, against bread, um, against milk, uh, and, and trying to create a, um, a diet that was specific to Japanese people uh, as a way to uh, maybe counteract some of the changes that he saw that he saw as being a problem uh, coming in during the earlier parts of uh, the Meiji period. So um, he's a bit of a fringe figure in his time, but also a really fascinating figure. Um, and his ideas, at least at his moment, really kind of lost, right? Um, we can see how for a long time after that, um, you know, bread uh, and milk were extremely popular uh, elements of um, not only uh, rations, but also of um, uh, school meals for kids, right? Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, we, we can see the roots of that idea coming up in a bit of a different context and then becoming available to be uh, kind of plucked out and reinvented uh, in a really um, useful and positive way to create a new kind of message in the Shokuiku that we think of uh, mm, today, even if it was right. slightly different than what he meant it. Right, but uh, like, like you said, uh, the Shokuik word came back uh, alive because of the government totally changed and emphasized on this idea of uh, the food comes first and the food education comes first. So um, it's like it's a bad uh, diet started to go everywhere in the Japanese diet, try to um, maintain the traditional idea of good diet because people started to have more diabetes and getting fat and all those things. So it's almost like the repeated history uh, in modern Japan. So what happened during the Edo period and Meiji period, now we are aware, oh, there's something wrong with the current diet. So let's just go back. And then there's the word shokuiku. And uh, yeah, we started to talk more about harahachibume, like eat only 80%, that kind of thing. So it's a recurring reminder of good diet, I think. Absolutely. I mean, if we, um, if we believe in the, in the sort of historian saying that, uh, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, um, then certainly this is a good uh, example of that, right? How we can see this reinvention happening in a, in a kind of cyclical way and these um, changes and reactions to those changes uh, that were so powerful back then, taking on new powerful meaning today as well. Mm, right. So the Japanese diet really dramatically changed since the Meiji era. And uh, so what do you think is different now from the past? And what do you think about the modern Japanese diet? And maybe what we can do uh, with that based on what we just discussed I mean, wow. So there's there's so much there, right? There's so much to talk about here because there's so much change that happens uh, between the Meiji period and today. But maybe we'll fast forward a little bit to, to more, uh, you know, to today's Japanese diet. And I guess some of the things that I think have, have changed are, you know, really looking, of course, at hyper globalization, 
right? Mm -hmm. Which means that exchange and influence that had been happening to some degree all along happen much faster and in a much more sustained way than ever before, right? So you have uh, not only uh, international influences entering Japan, right? Particularly uh, global brands, right? Um, and transforming the Japanese diet in that way. But you have the reverse happening too um, and Japanese food moving throughout the globe. Um, and that's, of course, the sort of global Japanese food boom where interest uh, in uh, Japanese flavors and also just the logistics to move Japanese ingredients all around the world uh, become so much more uh, seamless, right? I mean, I always, I, when I arrived here in, in Tucson, I told my students how surprised I am to see, uh, you know, relatively okay Japanese food in uh, a, a landlocked desert, basically, right? A place <laughs> that is so um, just different in in uh, in climate and, and atmosphere than than Japan itself, um, let alone you know in a, in a big urban center like like New York or LA. Um, so so that is is a major change too, is just how much global attention uh, Japanese food is getting, um, and of course this creates itself a concern uh, and and an arising concern about authenticity and about heritage preservation also. That's something very new, right? Um, which, of course, culminates in 2013 with the UNESCO Washoku uh, designation um, that I think many of us are, are familiar with. And um, what's so interesting to me is that in the early waves of the globalization of Japanese food in both directions, um, this question of authenticity isn't really on the table so much uh, in the Meiji period, Taisho, even into the Showa period. Um, and it's only recently with the kind of rise of this hyper-globalized movement, I think, that um, we see a real interest in defining what exactly is authentically Japanese food, what counts, what doesn't count, um, and then... Um, you know, see, and then, and then looking at the sort of food system through that lens. So to me, that's a big change as well that's happened mm. quite recently. Right. Well, you know, at the University of Arizona, uh, you teach, of course, the culture of food and health in Japan. So, mm -hmm. um, so based on what you just said, you know, there are students, uh, American students taking your uh, course, which sounds fascinating. And so what do you teach to your students and uh, what's the, the students' motivation to sign up for your classes? Yeah, I mean, another really interesting question. I guess for me, um, you know, I think there's so much we can learn from the history of the Japanese diet, but also a few things that maybe we can't, right? Um, you know, first, I think for, for people who are trying to kind of look for the, to the past for a sort of ready-made uh, ideal diet to practice right now, I think they may be a little bit disappointed, and many have tried this, right? Um, I, I think you're also in for a, for a surprise about just how new or, uh, you know, many of the dishes that we consider traditional Japanese cuisine really are. Um, and, you know, thinking about when they enter, how they enter and what the circumstances are for me is the most fascinating part. And, and but I really, the point I really want to make about this is that new and old and traditional and not traditional for me are, are not even the most useful categories for understanding what is or isn't Japanese food culture. Um, you know, if you're asking yourself whether this dish that's in front of you, uh, is or isn't authentic, I think the answer is that. Really, they all are, as long as you ask, not just authentic to where, but also authentic to when. And one of the things I try to teach my students is to really pay attention to that 
how how time works, right, and how Japanese food transforms, and how all of that um, you know creates a really rich uh, and deep um, sort of culture of food that um, resides across time periods, right? So this kind of richness and diversity of Japanese food culture, including diversity across time, to me really shows us this kind of inexhaustible source of, of inspiration, of excitement, of creative change that I think uh, Japanese cuisine really represents. So that's the first thing I really try to uh, instill in, in my students. Mm, right. I, I really want to run through your syllabus and I was really curious because you just go through, you have a comparative view compared Japanese and French cuisine. And uh, I mean, I spoke to your students, but they're really interested in healthy food. I think that's their generation, right? Your students' mm -hmm. generation. I, yeah, I really think so. Um, so I, I tend to have a, a couple of different sort of groups of students in the course, right? So the largest group is usually uh, students with an interest in Japanese contemporary culture, usually through their exposure to pop culture, anime, etc. Um, and and then another group of students uh, who are maybe um, either just majors in food studies or nutritional sciences, or who just want to kind of get a different cultural outlook on, on how to eat and, and how to live. Um, and this is really interesting and different for me. I think even just from, you know, my own generation when I was, uh, you know, their age, not to date myself too much here. Um, I think that question of eating and living a healthy lifestyle as a strong motivating factor to take a college course um, might not have been there in quite as broad a way. Um, and I know that's painting with a broad brush, but that's my impression that we really do have a, um, a change in the interest among young people who are really, really want to know um, how their diets and lifestyles uh, kind of affect them in a broader way and how to, um, you know, treat themselves and their bodies as well as they possibly can. Um, mm -hmm. And not only just in a sort of scientific perspective, but in a cultural context, too. And to look uh, abroad and look to uh, examples from other cultures that might be less uh, familiar to their everyday experiences um, and try to see what lessons they can they can draw from that. So mm. trying to facilitate that exploration is something that's really important to me. Right, right. They are probably the first generation who um, has to think of the risk they are exposed to in terms of ecology and diet. And it's like survival, right? Unless you somewhat switch to plant-based diet, your future could be at risk physically. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's a different mindset. And I'm, I'm really interesting. I'm interested in those, you know, the new generation's mindset. And it's really, it's a sort of celebration. They're really broad-minded, global-minded, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they have a serious concerns about the future. So I'm very hopeful what, how they're going to carry this direction to somewhere else than in the past. So anyway, so mm -hmm. what are you working on right now besides teaching? Wow. Well, um, first of all, I should say I'm, I'm very hopeful uh, for, for this generation, too. And um, it's, it's a pleasure to work with them and to um, see just how um, their, like you said, their experiences and maybe the necessity of asking these kinds of questions right now uh, is, um, uh, is driving this um, this new set of interests, and, and I really appreciate uh, that, and I appreciate them. Um, in terms of my own work, I'm really uh, polishing up the book manuscript at this point, trying to get that finished, um, and the book is basically all about um, concepts and knowledge and ideas of dietary health in the Edo period and how they start to circulate to new 
uh, people. So a lot of what we've talked about already today. So I'm finishing up the, the book manuscript and uh, searching for, uh, you know, publishing opportunities for all of that. And, and I'm always, of course, seeking uh, collaborators, both on food history and on uh, Japanese culture uh, more generally. Um, so please feel free to get in touch. I would love to, to talk with any of you who are listening. Who, um, sure. So do you know when to the... think about these questions? Yeah. And do you know when the book is coming out? Uh, not yet, so I'm still working on that part right now, but um, I'm uh, nearing, I believe, completion from my end, so uh, then we're, um, uh, I'll, I'll look for um, a chance Publishers, to, to right. publish it from there, and then uh, hopefully it'll be out as soon as possible, fingers crossed. Okay, right, so, right, so when it comes out, please come back, and I really want, want to know more about, in depth, about uh, what you, you're researching on, because this is very important, so... All right. I would so, love to. We could. I could talk about this all day. I know. <laughs> so, uh, well, good luck with the book. And uh, where can we find your updates online or social media? Sure. So I, I must admit, I, I keep a, a rather low profile on social media, um, but that does not mean that I don't want to hear from from you. I would love to uh, talk with you or interact uh, with anybody who's who's um, who's interested. Um, so you can always reach me by by email um, and through my uh, webpage, the University of Arizona. Um, in the East Asian Studies uh, departments, um, so I can I can give my email address now, or is it better to, sure, to write sure. it out? So, sure. Uh, sure. So it's just uh, J Schlacket J S C H L A C H E T at email arizona edu, um, and I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much. All right, great. So thank you so much for joining us today, Josh. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. So I learned so much from you today. So I'll try to be healthier <laughs> based on. <laughs> so will I, please. I, I have a long way to go as well. <laughs> right. So uh, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or at kikukatema.com. Japan Needs is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org. Org, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Naman Wang, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japan Needs is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.